excited to be preaching this morning in our new series as we continue into uh, the season of Easter. In the church calendar, Easter doesn't end on Resurrection Sunday. Easter begins on Resurrection Sunday. And we move into that spirit, into that theology, into that life of living the resurrection. What does that mean? How do we view it? How does it affect our lives? And where does the joy of Christ's resurrection continue in our lives? Um, As we move into this series, we are going to, for four weeks, be walking a series called Faith and Doubt. Well, we'll be looking at the resurrected Jesus and His interaction with His followers before He ascends into heaven and sends His Spirit. There is 40 days of Jesus resurrected, walking around, eating fish, jumping through walls, and sharing the new life, and that life itself has been transformed by the power of the resurrection. This morning, we're going to be looking at one of those four stories in the story of Thomas, and Thomas's doubt himself. We're going to look at John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29. I'll be reading in the New Living Translation. There are Bibles underneath every other seat, or you can follow along in your own Bible or your notes, uh, your Bible app on your phone. John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29. One of the twelve disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin or Didymus in some of your translations, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, we have seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, and place my hands into the wound in his side. Graphic. Eight days later, the disciples were together again. This time, Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, look at my hands. Put your hands into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. Then Jesus told him, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word that speaks to us. We thank you, God. Uh, for the records kept of the early church of what you spoke and what your followers believed and how they understood and wrestled with who you are, Jesus. We pray that your Spirit speaks to us today. May your Word bring life into us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. As we walk into this series, and specifically as we look into Thomas's story today, I want to share Uh, three stories about doubt and faith and the transition between those two. The first I'll share is a story from 10 years ago now. I traveled out west to visit a friend of mine, also to do some hiking, and it was a friend of mine that I had grown up in youth group with, uh, a friend of mine that we had wrestled in faith together. We had been in Bible studies together. We had prayed together. We had slept over each other's house and did that whole thing. We're late at night. We're asking questions. How do we do this? What does it mean? Where's my identity in this? We did all of those things and those journeys together. I then went to a non-Christian college and I studied religion. He went to a Christian college and studied business. And in the process of that, somewhere along the line, he had taken a Bible literature class, 
And the first seeds of doubt were sowed into him. How do I understand this? How is this story different from other ancient Near Eastern stories and myths that they share about it? How, how, how did the early followers understand the resurrection and where were their agendas in sharing these stories? And the beginning of doubt came into him. Additionally, he came back home after college, lived with his parents as they were working through a pretty painful moment of their own divorce And he saw in his parents, who had taught him faith, who had been elders and leaders in church, he saw them now living out some pretty tough truths and seeing some sides of them he hadn't seen before. And now relational doubt in what he had been taught was sown in as well. Add to that, he had moved out west and had new friends that had great arguments who were not Christians anymore themselves or had never been people of faith. He was living far from home and experiencing a lot more of what the world had to offer. And so that summer, we sat in a hot springs in the mountains out west as he, for hours, shared with me about how he didn't consider himself a person of faith anymore. And he had grown past that. He had seen the world bigger and wider, and he had been more enlightened to how life and life is and no longer considered himself a Christian. This would years ago, a decade ago, but today we would use the language and the term that he had walked through what we know as deconstruction. He had deconstructed his faith and walked away from it. He had gone from being a Christian, no longer a Christian. Another friend of mine also grew up in the church and worked at another church, moved uh, down south and worked at a huge mega church and was on staff at that church and participated in it and then moved to be a part of an even bigger, even cooler megachurch. And then the pandemic happened. And in the midst of the pandemic, he began to, in his setting, in his church, begin to feel like some of the shallow answers they were given weren't really enough and wrestled with seeing church leaders and other Christians around him have discussions that weren't very loving and weren't very kind and began to ask himself the question, Where do I fit in this anymore? Do I even believe the same things these people believe anymore? Going through his own anxieties during the pandemic and asking, why is this not working to speak to my own fears and struggles in this? And he pressed into those questions, came out the other side and found another Christian tradition and moved to another denomination where he was able to experience Jesus anew and receive the peace that he had for him, speak to him again, and revived and renewed his faith. And he moved from one Christian tradition to another, and his faith is still alive and well, and he just sees it differently from the cultural experiences he did before, still loves Jesus, still holds to Scripture, still prays and is thriving. The third friend I grew up in high school with who was the valedictorian of my class. She was and is a genius, had a 1600 on her SATs, graduated in the top 0.001% of graduating seniors in my year. I was not quite in that group. She had grown up an atheist. Both of her parents were. And so in high school, we respected each other, um, were friends, but would often disagree and get in some heated arguments over how we viewed life. She went away, went to an Ivy League school, and I remember the beginning days of Facebook and the wild west of social media, she began to post things while we were in college that felt vaguely Christian, and she was asking questions and posting quotes from Augustine or Aquinas, 
And I was like, where is this coming from? And I started to see more Christian rhetoric in her posts. And so I, I private messaged her, I DM'd her, and I said, hey, what's going on with the questions that you're asking? And she said, you know, I came into college, I had a lot of questions, and I had a lot of struggles in my own life of how all this worked. And I began to read Scripture and see that there were a lot of answers in there that I was looking for. I began to pray and hear God's voice, and it drew me into a campus ministry where I started attending, and they had answers and community, and I received peace, and now I'm a follower of Jesus. And in this, now I'm able to answer questions that others haven't answered. And she went from no faith to faith. All three of these people went through their own journeys of deconstruction, went through questions they had and had assumed about life and faith and how it works, wrestled with that and came out the other side different than they entered. One came in as a Christian, lost it. One came in as a type of Christian, came out another type of equally valid Christian. And one came in with no faith and left as a follower of Jesus. And so today we're going to look at another person, a biblical example in Thomas, as we've already read, of his journey of doubt and faith. And we're going to simply have our main idea and our direction be, how do we walk with Jesus through faith and doubt? How do we walk with Him while we ask these questions, while we examine our own faith and what we believe. And let's look at the background. I'm going to talk about the term deconstruction briefly because it's become a, a cultural uh, lightning rod right now. Deconstruction originally is the idea in a very literal sense of taking apart something that has been built. That's the concrete understanding. Philosophically, deconstruction, when it comes to ideas, cultures, systems, or faith, is about taking large concepts and breaking them into the smaller pieces that make this idea and examining each one. How does this work? Where does this come from? Why do I understand this? Deconstruction has gotten a really bad rap in that we've seen many stories of people taking their Christian faith, bringing it into smaller pieces, destroying it, and walking away, like my friend in college. Deconstruction also is a really helpful tool of taking things that are not Jesus, that we've always thought were a part of being a follower of Jesus, examining it and saying, actually, you know what? No, this is not a part of Jesus, and falling deeper in love with Him, following Him more richly and more fully in our journey of faith. Data says that 60% of people will go through deconstruction in their late teens and early 20s. It's a part of maturity. It's asking the questions that we're given growing up, the faith belief, the ideas, who we are, and as we become an adult, saying, do I believe this? Can I own this? How do I understand this? In the process most of us go through, we call it maturation, we begin to try and examine what we understand and how we understand life, culture, politics, faith. The Apostle Paul frames it like this in his letter to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 3 verse 2, he says, I gave you milk at first because you were young, and I just gave you the easy answers, the gentle answers, but now as you're maturing, I'm giving you solid food, and I'm believing you can handle this and grow into this now. Later on in 1 Corinthians 13 11, he says, when I was a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, I believed like a child, but when I became an adult, I put aside childish things. 
The author of Hebrews says as well in Hebrews 5 verse 2, he says, at first you were eating milk. He uses the same idea as Paul. And he goes, but honestly, you've been a believer a really long time and you're still just drinking milk when you've got to move to the solid food, man. You have to examine this deeper. Own this. What is this like? Is your faith just something you were given by your parents that you just, this is what I do? This is who I am? Or have you genuinely asked the hard questions? Why do I believe this? How does this work in my life? Is this historical? Is this good ideas about my life? Did Jesus really die for my sins? What does that mean for me? In the last five years, deconstruction and asking hard questions about faith has really ramped up. You may feel it. You may experience it. You may have gone through it yourself. You may have children or grandchildren that you've seen go through this process And it's painful to watch somebody go through this and you don't know how to help them or guide them in it. This is not Scripture, this is me. I believe that there are several factors in the recent history that has caused this. I think overemphasis in churches over salvation and growth at all costs. We just need to grow, we need to get people saved, we need to baptize them, go, 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 get more people, bigger numbers. By doing that, We have also sacrificed the depth of teaching of theology and discipleship and wrestling with these ideas. So we've baptized a lot of Christians that are a mile wide and an inch deep, and when they suffer or struggle or somebody gives them a tough question, why is there no archaeological evidence of the Exodus? Fallen apart. Number two is the politicization of pastors. Too many people like me have stood on this pulpit and told you how to vote and what to vote, which party is the right party and which party is the demon party. And by doing that, we have isolated and split the church into a million pieces. And what a lot of Christians and ex-Christians have pointed to is it really looks like the church just wants to grab onto power. And that doesn't seem to be what Jesus said, so I think I'm out. I don't know if I want to have anything to do with this. And then third is moral failures inside of Christian leadership. We've seen this a million times in the last few years. And honestly, I don't think there are more moral failures in leadership now. I just think we have smartphones and social media and the internet and we see them more readily. And so we lose our faith in those who are teaching us about faith. And then fourth and final, I think this is probably the most credible one, is a theological discussion that is really difficult about sexuality. How do we understand that and walk that together? I hear this most often from people in their early 20s and late teens. How do we understand Scripture and what Paul says about sexuality, about marriage, about gender, with what I see in culture and life now? How do I bring those two together? I think all four of those have come together and created a perfect storm of asking questions about our faith. In short, I would probably sum it up as priorities, power, hypocrisy, and a lack of compassion in how we talk about all of this. That's just me. When we're talking about deconstruction, we're talking about a cycle of faith. Cycle of faith, think of it as a triangle with three sides. On one side is construction. That's where we build our faith, build our ideas, how we understand life, faith, existence, all of it. The next side then is deconstruction. We have construction, then you have deconstruction. Something wasn't built quite right in this building, so I got to take a bit of it apart. And third is reconstruction. Once it's taken apart, I build it back up. For those of us in a theological sense, in a faith sense, construction is 
where our beliefs are created and formed, whether that's our childhood and our parents or whether that's when we came to faith, whatever that moment was, the pastor who spoke into our life in that moment, the small group leader who was influential, the campus ministry leader who shared faith with us, they helped us to construct an idea of faith and life. Then inevitably, most of us go through a moment of deconstruction where maybe it's suffering, maybe it's struggling, maybe it's somebody else with really good questions, and then we ask ourselves, is this really how that works? Is this how I need to have all of this together? We maybe take a brick out of that construction that's been formed. And then third, reconstruction. What do I believe now? What does it look like now? And this corner from the deconstruction to reconstruction is where we can see three very different directions we can land in. We can land at the end of it in It's all gone. I've reconstructed into I am no longer a person of faith and I'm moving on with my life. We move on to I am still a person of faith, but I don't practice it the way I did before. That's fine. I have friends that were Presbyterian, now are Pentecostal. Friends who are Pentecostal now are Lutheran. There's a lot of wiggle room. The church is 2,000 years old. I honestly believe the way that we do it is my preferred way. I think it is the most fun and engaging, but there's a lot of space in the umbrella of Christianity and life. I have really good friends that pastor other churches. Or third, we can come through and we've had really bad ideas built, and the deconstruction helps us build a faith anew and find Jesus Christ. So, doubt has gotten a lot of a bad rap. It can be a beautiful tool to grow a richer, deeper faith. Maddie read earlier, Mark chapter 9, verse 24, The gospel writer shares a story where the father exclaims, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 5, when Isaiah is confronted with God's presence, he says, it's all over. I'm doomed. I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips and I live among a people of filthy lips. Yet I have seen the King, the Lord of heaven's armies. That confrontation moment in the Yiddish phrase, it would be the phrase, oy vey, oy vey, I can't handle this walking in this journey. So let's look at the text. Let's look back at John chapter 20. Jesus is resurrected. He's alive. He has revealed His resurrected body, His resurrected life to some of His disciples, to 10 of His 12 disciples. Judas has already killed himself. He's no longer a part. So there's 11. He's revealed himself to 10 of those 11, and he's revealed himself to other followers, Mary and the other women at the tomb. He's revealed himself. So they know that Jesus is resurrected because they've experienced it. They were there. He showed himself to them. For Thomas, he wasn't there. We don't know why, what he was doing, where he was, what journey he was on, but he wasn't there when everybody else saw the resurrected Jesus. And so in this moment, they're talking to him about Jesus resurrected. Man, this changes everything. What are we going to do? What does this look like? He told us to stay in Jerusalem and to pray for for his presence and his power. We don't know what that means. And Thomas is saying, guys, I know you're really excited about this. This is a lot to swallow. We followed Jesus, and Thomas was a person of faith. He was there. He was praying over people. He saw him feed, walk on water, perform miracles. He was there in the process but he's saying, I don't know if this new part of what God's doing, I don't know if I believe this. This is crazy. 
that Jesus is now alive and walking around and appearing in places and eating fish with some of y'all, and he's talking to us. I don't know if I can believe that. Not until my eyes see it, my fingers touch it, I experience the resurrected Jesus, can I believe this? He is so famous for this passage now, and Thomas has other passages in the Gospels that we know him as, anybody want to shout it out? What do we call Thomas? Doubting Thomas. This is all he's known for now. This moment of doubt. Doubting Thomas. Doubt is very hard for us to walk in a gospel-oriented grace pattern of it. In the conservative church tradition, which is what we are, and we hold to a high authority of Scripture and Christ working and moving in us, doubt can often be seen as demonic. We demonize doubt. There's passages. James says this, pray for those who have doubt or their struggle with it, and we internalize that. You can't have faith and doubt. You can't pray for somebody with a little bit of doubt. God's not going to answer it. You can't have any doubt in you because it's a poison that will eventually corrupt you and lead you away from faith. You can't have doubt. We demonize it. In the other end of faith spectrum, on the progressive side of it, Doubt is valorized. Doubt is a great and good thing. We should be questioning everything, asking all questions, challenging every aspect of faith. Doubt is essential to faith, and we either demonize it and and avoid it at all costs, or we valorize it and put it on a place of sacred value. Whereas I think Thomas gives us a third way of understanding doubt and faith together in the grace needed to walk and understand what Christ is doing in our lives. Let's look at three things Thomas does in the passage. The first thing is, Thomas didn't experience the resurrection himself. It says, one of the twelve disciples, Thomas, wasn't there. And I honestly think calling him doubting Thomas kind of gives him a bad rap. I feel bad. He wasn't there. They were there. They saw him and touched him. He wasn't a part of it. And so he's just saying, I, 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 good for you guys. I wasn't there a part of it. I don't know how this works. He was left out of that experience. And for some of us, when we go through periods of doubt, maybe that was you throughout the pandemic. A lot of us went through those periods during that time. Or maybe you have a child who's been going through doubt in their own faith or life or a grandchild going through that process. When we are struggling with doubt in the church, we can often feel really alone. Like we're left out of whatever else everybody else is experiencing. That woman in the front row who's like super going for it in worship, I wish I could feel like she feels. I wish I could be as confident as she is, but I'm not. And so maybe I'm not a part of this. Maybe I'm I'm not in this community anymore. I'm in a small group and somebody's just quoting scripture after scripture and they know all of it and they're confident in it. And I don't feel that way. I don't know those scriptures This is the first step where we can come off and just be like, well, I don't feel like everybody else seems like they feel, so I guess I'm not a part of this anymore. And then we do the process of doubt and deconstruction alone in isolation. Or really late at night on YouTube or by Google searching at like 1 a.m., worst possible place to process that. It's hard to believe when you haven't experienced it yourself. And so second thing is Thomas trusted himself only. If I can't see it with my eyes, if I can't touch it with my hand, I don't got it. I'm not a part of this. I won't believe until dot, dot, dot. 
He gives parameters for what God needs to do to then earn His faith. I won't believe until God answers X, Y, or Z. We live actually in the shadow of a period of time historically called the Enlightenment. Very tough time for Christianity because Enlightenment meant everything had to be able to be proved empirically through the scientific method. And when your core belief is that a human being was both God and man at the same time, died in a grave, and then conquered death somehow, and that the standard position of the church is mystery, it's hard to then fall into that framework. I, I can't prove it completely. I can't. I can't X, Y, or Z walk. I think there is strong empirical evidence as to why the church believed that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. I believe that there is strong experiential evidence as to what Christ is doing in the resurrection and does for us, but I can't, no, prove it scientifically. I can't. There are Christians who have attempted to marry the both. I can prove everything, and if I can't, it's not a part of it. Thomas Jefferson, one of the founders of our nation, famously wrote his own Bible where he took out every miraculous thing that couldn't be explained scientifically. It's called the Jefferson Bible. You can see it in the Smithsonian. He literally, with scissors, cut out every miracle in Scripture. Exodus, there are plagues that happen. Nope, that doesn't happen. That's not scientific. I cut that out. Jesus, had someone was blind and he helped them see. Nope, that's not possible. He cut that out. It is one of the saddest Bibles you could ever read because he also cuts out the resurrection. People don't raise from the dead, cut it out. And so his Bible, the crux of the gospel story, ends with Jesus' death. There's nothing after. When we, like Thomas, place ourselves in that, I have to see all of it, experience all of it, understand all of it. God has to answer all of my rationality. We run the danger of eliminating the beauty of the mystery of who God is and what Christ has done. And the last thing we see Thomas do is he worshiped. That's great. He says, and this is really important for biblical scholars that study this, he exclaims, my Lord and my God the most direct declaration of who the resurrected Jesus Christ is, my Lord and my God, my authority and my Savior. He sees Jesus as He is. For many of us, as we look at this passage in Thomas's example, I'll be blunt, I have lived in this church for the last 15 years as a minister and as a part of this. I have seen many people who are living a faith that is not their own. We are living a faith that our parents told us about, that their life was one way and they met Christ and now it was another way. And we grow up hearing that and we go to church and we believe these things and I do it because that's what we're supposed to do but I don't know if I can personally say that I've wrestled with this text. I've wrestled with my desires of who I want to be in my identity and come to Jesus Christ myself and had a real living encounter with Him. I don't think I could say that. I don't know. Here's how it works in the modern world. There is a first generation. They experienced new life in Jesus. They were maybe an alcoholic, or maybe they just worked really hard. And This is a common expression for many of us. I'm a fourth-generation Christian. My 
grandmother's mother is the first one in our family to, to come into faith on my dad's side. Um, but they have a story like this. My life was one way. It was, it was awful. I was struggling. Somebody shared the gospel with me that there was new life in Christ Jesus. I went to a tent revival or to a church or a pastor was speaking to me. And in that moment, I felt my life change tangibly. I went from feeling like life was about death and oppression and I was stuck in my sin to feeling free and alive and with the promise of eternity. I met Jesus Christ in that moment and my life was one way and now it is another. And I cannot go back to the way it was. Then their children, the second generation, grow up in church with their parents' story. And they may not experience that life change, but they go to church, they participate in it, and they can honestly say, I know my dad or I know my mom, I know the story they went through, and I could see the conviction in them, and that means something to me. So I practice this faith the way they do. The problem now is the third generation. Their children are born. And their children now are raised in the church, raised to go to Sunday school or Bible study, and they don't remember even the story of their grandparents coming into faith and what their life was like. They vaguely understand a story from their parents' story about their grandparents' life. And they're raised in church. They don't have this experience with Jesus. They haven't wrestled with the text or faith themselves. And so what happens is one moment... They go to college, and they hear one biblical literature class, and someone questions Scripture, and they go, oh, yeah, you're right, none of this is real. They go and they spend time with other friends who aren't believers, who have convincing stories about their life and have difficult questions, honest questions, and they go, yeah, I don't have an answer for that. Or they come to a real moment where they have to pray and wrestle with God over a struggle and a suffering, and they don't know how to do it. And they say, well... I'm, I'm moving on. This isn't real then. We can't live on someone else's faith experience. And many of us are trying to do that or have tried to do that. Or honestly, and I'll say this incredibly bluntly, some of the older generation of this church has talked to me about their children or about their grandchildren and their struggles with faith. And they've tried to argue with them or convince them. You need to give them the space and encourage them lovingly to have that experience themselves. To ask Jesus Christ to reveal Himself to them in whatever way that may look like, whatever the experience is for them, but trust that God can and will meet with them like He did with you. And allow them to wrestle that faith in their own heart and their life. They can't live on borrowed faith. We can't. We see this for Thomas. He can't live on borrowed faith of what their experience was. Like Thomas, though, we come into this point where it's dangerous to trust others. This is what we live in now. It's dangerous for me to trust your version of the story, another pastor's version of the story, a denomination's agenda of the story of Jesus. It's dangerous for me to trust that. And honestly, there are real reasons for that. The Bible, for hundreds of years, was used to prop up slavery in the United States. There's a version of the Bible as well for this. It's called a slave Bible, where they would give the slaves a Bible and they'd cut out Exodus. 
Because if they read the story of Exodus, they would know that their life is meant to be free and that they have value in their life and that those who oppress and control others have it coming in the future and they were the ones oppressing and controlling. And so he said, don't let them read that. Let them read Paul where he says, in grace, humble yourself before others and submit. But don't let them read about God's call for freedom. Don't let them read Mary's Magnificat that those with power are in trouble with judgment and God has come to set people free. Don't let them read that. And so we say, all right, Bible, I don't know. It's been used for, it's been controlled with. We say, I've seen pastors abuse the vulnerable. I've seen them do it. I've seen them do it in this last year. I've heard the stories of Ravi Zacharias and what he has done with the power and the authority people gave him. So I don't know about trusting a pastor or a church or an organization. Or the church has honestly been wrong. We've been wrong about a lot of different stuff. Copernicus said that the earth revolved around the sun and the church killed him. We've made mistakes. All organizations have because they're run by humans who are made in God's image but are fallen and broken. Maybe you've been given lazy answers to complex questions about the Bible or about prayer. Maybe you've seen confident, passionate Christians worship on a Sunday and then treat the waiter at Red Lobster like garbage afterwards, right? If you've been a waiter, you know sometimes there is literally a trope. The worst crowd to serve as a waiter are the Sunday people coming out of service. Some of you are literally saying it's true and nodding your head. We've lived these experiences, And honestly, we've seen the church not be enough. It's not caring enough for me, not teaching deep enough theology for me, not evangelistic enough, reaching enough people, not serving the vulnerable enough. Those are legit complaints. They are. They're legit. I received it, and I have my own flaws, and people have complained about us and how we do things. Legit, we need to grow and learn as churches and as leaders and as followers of Christ. But here's the problem. Deconstruction can be a powerful place to stay in. Everything I just listed, right, is kind of fun. It's kind of empowering, right, to be like, yeah, you're right. They didn't do that. Yeah, you're right. They are terrible. That's intoxicating. That view of standing on the sideline and pointing out every flaw, pointing out every failure. You could do it forever. I follow Instagram accounts that are doing it every minute of every day, complaining and pointing out. There is church scandal after church scandal. There's failure after failure. The problem with deconstruction or the danger inherent in it is it can feel like enlightenment to simply point out the flaws in something, to point out the flaws in faith, to point out the flaws in churches or denominations or pastors. And it's dangerous to get stuck there. And we can get stuck there for the rest of our life. I call it pseudo-enlightenment. I've realized just enough to realize there's a problem, but not enough to see what the solution can or may be. What we see about Thomas is... I don't think he had a posture of wanting to stay in the critical place. I don't think he said, I want to be able to touch and I want to be able to see as a mask to be better than the rest of the disciples. And I'll tell you why. Because 
the moment Jesus showed up, he got on his knees and he said, my Lord and my God, and he worshiped. He was going through doubt and deconstruction with a posture of wanting to believe, with a posture of wanting to know God. And very many of us are vulnerably walking a process of doubt, wanting to believe, wanting to know, wanting to receive the peace that comes from Christ. And so let's see a couple of the beauties in this passage for Thomas. The first one I think is really important. Thomas was still present in his doubts. He was there. He he was asking questions. He was struggling. He wasn't in the experience of everybody else, but you know what? He was still there. He was still with them. He had this dividing point, but he said, you know what? I'm not going to go off and do this alone. I'm still going to be a part of this. I'm still going to walk this with the people I love and care about, and I'm going to ask my doubts and my questions with my community. If you've been through doubt or deconstruction, or if you currently are, it says it was a week or eight days for Thomas from when he asked that question to when Jesus showed up. And if you've been through doubt and deconstruction, I think that week is significant because it may be a week, but it feels like forever. It feels like you're asking these questions for months, for years. You're not a part of it. And it's so easy to just pull back and be like, nah, I'm I'm doing this on my own. Thomas pressed in. My encouragement, if you are asking questions, if you are walking in doubt and deconstruction, if you know people that are, stay in community. The second thing, Thomas was searching for truth. In Acts 17, verse 11, there's a group of people called the Bereans. Paul preaches the gospel to them, and it says... The people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica, and they listened eagerly to Paul's message. They searched the Scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. They were doubters. Paul preached the message. They said, hold on. I need to go back. I need to think about this. I need to go back to the Scriptures and see if this lines up. They go back. They process it. They come back and they go, yep, you're right, man. We're, We're coming along with you. We're in this. And Scripture says it honors them for not just blindly being like, sure, yeah, let's do this. They thought about it and brought it into their heart and into their soul. It's not bad to search for truth. It's not. I believe, genuinely believe, that Jesus Christ is life and truth itself. I believe, genuinely, that Scriptures were inspired and guided by the Holy Spirit in order to lead us to Jesus Christ at the center of the story. And if it's truth, then no amount of questioning and doubting and researching can push me away from it. It'll just further lead me into the depth of the truth of who He is. Third, Thomas had a posture of worship. He wants to believe. He's ready to believe. And so we'll close on bringing this passage home to ourselves. First thing, that Jesus is present in our doubts. He's present there. He's with us there. I've shared this dozens of times throughout the last two years of pandemic life. 33% of the Bible is lament. 33% of the Bible are records of people asking the question, how does a good God allow the suffering we're walking in? If you're asking those questions, 
you're in good company with 33% of the Bible. In fact, the two longest books of the Bible are Psalms, everybody can normally guess that one, and the other one is Jeremiah, actually longer than Psalms by actual words, it's longer. These two books are literally records of people's doubt and faith. That's the whole theme of both books. I'm struggling, but I believe that you're good. How do I walk this journey together? If you're going through that, or if someone else you know is going through it, lovingly encourage them that Jesus is present there in it, and that they're in good company with people of Scripture who've walked that journey too. Too often, when somebody doubts as a community of faith believers, we see it as toxic, and we push them out. I actually know this experience for myself as a pastor. There is a part of me when someone starts asking very good, hard questions about Scripture, about faith, about sexuality, and are processing these. There's a little part of me that's like, ooh, if they start asking this question to other church members, this could be a big problem. And that's fear. That's not faith. As a church, when someone's struggling, we should welcome them in. You can do this journey here. You can do this journey with us. You may have doubt right now. Okay, let's walk this side by side. You ask your questions. I don't know. When I don't know, I'll shrug and say, I don't know. If I've been through it, I'll give you the wisdom I have through it. But we're in it with you in this process. The disciples were with Thomas in the room. And if you are going through it, please, honestly, my encouragement, don't relegate your doubt journey to the internet late at night alone. It's the worst possible way to do it. Do it with other people. Walk that journey together. I will make the commitment to you. I'll make the promise. If you are going through doubt or deconstruction, you have hard questions, you can schedule a meeting with me any week, anytime. Email me or go through the website. Many of you find me randomly on different social medias and DM me. That's fine too. And I will schedule a meeting with you or coffee and spend time with you and I'll hear you out and listen. I won't kick you out or judge you or yell at you. Walk this journey together. The second thing is that Jesus can handle our doubts. Some of us, it said 60% of people go through doubt or deconstruction. That means 40% don't. And some of you may not wrestle with that or go through it. That's great. That's awesome. That's called the, the gift of faith. You have the gift of faith that you can walk it and you move it. Awesome. There are others who have to wrestle with it. And I believe it's often the people God's going to send out to do the difficult works. The faith journey is difficult plowing. And they have to dig deep into their heart and into their life to understand it. Thomas had questions and doubts. Easily, they could have been like, all right, Thomas, you have doubts too? Get out. You're done. We're moving on patiently allowing him. Christ could have said, he says at the end, it's better to not see and believe, but he says it's still good that you believe when you saw. He didn't say, it wasn't good enough, Thomas. Get out. You should have just believed. Sorry. Your hands weren't high enough in worship. You didn't read your Bible last week. Sorry. And the beauty is for Thomas, the church has a history and a legacy of what Thomas did after this. Doubting Thomas then became a giant of the faith. And legend tells he took the gospel out of Israel and he went east all the way to India 
and planted churches, reached the lost in India. I have a picture of it I took from a church I was in this last week. Throw it up. I know it's not as beautiful as the rest of the slides. That's a stained glass window at a church I was in in West Palm, Florida of Thomas sharing the gospel with people in India. This is what Thomas becomes. We have members of our church. Our worship leader is Southern Indian, came from India, whose family tradition points back 2,000 years. They say it's because Thomas came to this country, reached our people with the gospel. Even if you are doubting, in the digging down deep of those roots, finding Christ on the other side of it, the power of what God can do through you and in you. Last thing is even in the process of our doubts, we already have what we're searching for. You already have it. We all have to take our journeys, ask our questions, meander around. But if I can say one thing in it, you already have it. The theological concept is Jesus Christ, death and resurrection, 100% completely and fully cemented in God's heart and mind that you are forgiven, that we are a part of the family of God, that He sees us only as Christ's righteousness and blood, and He sees us as members of His family. The problem is whether or not we pick up that identity ourselves, whether or not we accept that He sees us now this way, and we see ourselves as that. That's the divider. And this is what Satan does in Scripture whether it's Genesis 3 or whether it's Matthew 4, this is what happens. Genesis 3, Satan comes to Eve and he says, if you eat that apple, you will be like God. What is Eve already? Like God. It says she was made in his image. She already had what Satan was promising her. She already had it. And he convinced her she didn't. And she had to search for something else and find another path to get there. For Jesus, in Matthew 4, in the desert, what Satan promises him is, if you bow your knee to me, I will give you the nations. What does Jesus already have? The nations. He promises us what is already ours. And he says, you don't have it. You're unsettled without it. You're incomplete and you can't. When the truth is in the resurrection and in Christ Jesus, we've already got it. And that is the danger on the other side of doubt. It's when we begin to believe that we don't have it, that God isn't enough, that He hasn't called us complete and made us complete in Christ Jesus, and that we need something else and something else and something else to get there. When the truth is you already have it. It's there. It's in you. It's by His blood that God sees you as valuable. He sees you as worthwhile and complete. He sees you as forgiven and whole. He sees you as more than conquerors. He sees you as beloved daughters and sons. The question is, can we believe it and will we pick it up? But I'm going to tell you, as you go through the journey, it's already there. If you'll bow your heads and pray with me. If you're new to faith or been wrestling with faith, 
and aren't sure if you consider yourself a Christian or a follower of Jesus, or maybe it's been a really long time, I want to give you a moment this morning to take a first step of faith, take a first step of knowing Jesus. Just a simple prayer of saying, Jesus, I believe you are who you said you are. I believe that you died and rose again to be my Lord and my God. And I may not understand all of it, but I want to know it and better understand it. And I'll give you a chance to pray that with me. If you are a follower of Jesus, even if you're wrestling, I'll give you a chance just to commit in this moment. If you'll pray this with me. Jesus, I believe that you are God. I believe that you came to this earth as Christ Jesus and you are and were fully God and fully man and that you lived a beautiful, sinless life to demonstrate the beauty and value of this world and the beauty and value of your image bearers of each of us and that on the cross you took all of our brokenness, all of our sin and shame and you died in our place. You died instead of us that we may live forever with you. And that on the third day, you conquered death itself. You rose from the grave, eternal and full of life. And that Christ Jesus, by your resurrection, I may have the fullness of life in this earth and in eternity. I believe that you gave your life for me. Today, I commit my life to follow you and learn from you and trust in you as my Lord and as my God. I pray this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen and amen.